0: Well, last Sunday was Valentine's Day, a time when many received candy or flowers or cards. Uh, And while many may have remembered to give those to people that you loved, I think that most of us forgot what the day was originally focused on. You see, Valentine's Day was originally set apart to be the commemoration of St. Valentine's martyrdom. He was killed in the third century back on February 14th for his faith in Jesus Christ, As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 6, what we're going to be looking at is the first Christian who was ever martyred. His name was Stephen, and Stephen is a man that we met last week. If you were here, you'll recall he was one of the seven that were set apart to serve the widows in the early church. We were told in Acts 6-5 that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And as you look at Acts 6-8, it tells us more about this man and his ministry, It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, as these things are taking place, you'll recall that the the background and backdrop to all that's happening is the early church is being persecuted. The religious leaders, the Roman authorities are trying to shut down the spread of the church. And as Stephen is doing all these things, it gets him noticed. And so we see that in the next verses, uh, they try to shut Stephen down in Acts Chapter six, verses nine through 15, it says, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus uh, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel." Now, when it tells us he's brought before the council, this is the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. And as he's there, the high priest says in Acts 7-1, are these things true? Are these charges uh, accurate? Now, I want you to remember that this is the same council that Jesus Christ himself stood before just a few months earlier. This is a council that was looking for a reason to crucify and get rid of Jesus. And there were false accusers in that day, just as we see there are in this one. The text has already told us the charges aren't true. Everyone here knows that. Uh, You'll recall that back in Acts 4.16 and again in Acts 5.28, we saw where the apostles were being brought before the council and they were trying to shut down the preaching of the gospel. They were telling the apostles to stop sharing the message. They were imprisoned. They were beaten. And what's happening here is they're not trying to determine if these are accurate charges. They're using the court as a bully pulpit to shut down any discussion about Jesus Christ. And as Stephen stands there, we're told that they, they see his face. Now, as I gaze at this guy, I mean, he's 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 there on trial for his life, and you'd think he could be in fear and shaking, but it, instead, it says his face is glowing like an angel's. Now, this is something that I believe ties in with Exodus thirty four twenty nine, because as you look at Exodus thirty four twenty nine, you'll recall that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. It tells us as God gave the law to Moses, when he came down, the people saw the face of Moses shining. The kind of glory of God had, had transferred some of it to Moses in his face because he'd been in the presence of God was glowing. And I believe this is God's way of saying to those on the council, remember, they're accusing him of being against Moses. And what God is saying is, this man isn't against Moses. This man is like Moses, my servant, my servant who has a message that you need to hear. And the message that God wants them to hear is what makes up Acts chapter 7. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 7, it's the longest sermon in the book. There are over 50 verses here, and it would take all of our time just to read through this. So I'm going to summarize what we see here, but I encourage you when you go home sometime today to read through this and see what the text is telling you on your own. In Acts 6.13, the accusations that were made are twofold. They say this man incessantly speaks against this holy place. Now, that's the temple there in Jerusalem. And then it says that he's also against the law. The law is what was given to God, I mean, given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so these are the two charges. And as Stephen goes into this message, what he's going to do is, is address these accusations. And he, he, to do so, he goes back to the history of Israel. As he starts with the history, he goes all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning with a man by the name of Abram who became Abraham, the father of nations. And Abraham, you'll recall, was the one that God gave the promise to that said, you will be the patriarch, you will be the beginning of my chosen people, the Jews. And he also gave to Abraham the promise of the land that would be given to the Jews there in the area that we call uh, Israel and Palestine and the area that's in dispute today. And God also gave to Moses the sign I mean to Abraham the sign of circumcision there in acts seven eight this is mentioned. This shows that God was making this covenant with the Jews now in verse eight, he also speaks of the Son of promise. If you were here about this time last year, we went through a series in the book of Genesis looking at the life of joseph and you 'll recall that we traced the line of promise, starting with Abram, who became Abraham, the father of nations, and with his wife Sarah. Uh, is where the promise line came through. The Arabs today came through Hagar and Ishmael. And Isaac was the, the promised son with Rebekah. Then it went over to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And you recall that Jacob had sons who became the patriarchs of Israel through these four women. And there were the 12 tribes that you see listed. And what we saw is the line of promise went through Judah. The line went through Judah and ultimately it was fulfilled in the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. And as Stephen is tracing the history, as he goes back to the beginning and as he goes through this sermon, this is what you're going to see him doing. He's building the case, pointing ultimately to the fulfillment of all of God's promises through the promised one, Jesus Christ. And as Stephen does this, um, The the people are are listening, and in Acts 7, 9 through 19, you see where he focuses on Joseph, one of these sons. He says in verse 9, the patriarchs, these are the brothers of Joseph, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. And this is a foreshadowing and pointing to what happened with Jesus as well. You'll recall that the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. In John 12:19, it tells us how, uh, at one point, as they were watching the crowds follow Christ, uh, the, the Jewish leader said there, uh, in John 12:19, "The whole world is going after Jesus." And they were talking about how they were going to lose their place and their their influence and the temple would fall into disfavor and all these things. And so what they're holding on to is their franchise. They're not interested in the fulfillment of God's promises. They're more concerned with themselves as we're going to see further in Stephen's sermon. And so what Stephen does is he tells how Joseph became a slave in the foreign land sold there by his brothers, the patriarchs. But he says God was at work. As we saw last year in that series, we saw how God was with Joseph, whether it was in the pit, in the prison, and and moving him all the way up to the palace as he became Pharaoh's right-hand man, being used to redeem the people of Israel, to feed them during that time of extreme famine. And as he continues in verses 17 through 44, he moves to the next section of his message. And there he speaks about Moses. Now remember they said that he was against Moses, and this is probably why this is the longest section of his sermon. He says, I'm not against Moses. Let me tell you all about Moses. And you see the same uh, parallels of Egypt and the slavery that took place. But this time, it wasn't just Joseph who was in slavery. It was the entire nation of Israel. Israel was under bondage in Egypt. And Stephen says, God raised up Moses to deliver them. And he tells the story of Moses being born as a baby. And you'll recall the Egyptians were killing all of the baby boys And again, there's this foreshadowing of Christ where Herod was trying to kill the Messiah as a baby. And then you saw how uh, he tells how Moses for the first 40 years is there in the palace. And he says at the second 40-year mark, Moses is out among the Jews. He's walking around and he sees the oppression of his people, the Israelites. And there's an Egyptian taskmaster who's beating one of the Israelites. And Joseph loses control and he ends up killing this guy. And in Acts seven twenty-five through 27, it says, And Moses supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them. These are some of the Jews. And as they were fighting together, Moses tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Again, do you see what Stephen is doing? He's pointing to Jesus Christ, the deliverer that God was raising up. And what did the Jews do? They pushed him aside and said, who are you? You're not our ruler. You're not our judge. And he continues to build the story telling how Moses then ran away to Midian. And he was there for that 40-year period in the, the wilderness. And then he comes around to verse 35 saying how at about the age of 80, Moses was called to go back to Egypt to redeem the people. He says in verse 35, this Moses, whom they disowned saying, who made you ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. You remember there on the side of the mountain, he saw God appeared in the the burning bush and he received his commission to go back and set the people free. And Stephen says, you guys have been accusing me of opposing Moses, but it was your ancestors who opposed Moses. He says in verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Now, at this point, you can just picture them squirming because these guys are teachers of the law. They know the law. Whenever you see parts of the Bible in all capitals like that, that's telling you it's a quotation of a passage in the Bible. So he's quoting from the Old Testament law called Deuteronomy. In chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, this is where this is drawn from. And what he does is he underscores their rejection. He reminds them, hey, you guys today are just like your forefathers in the past who rejected God's Savior, the deliverer that God was raising up, and you didn't listen to the prophets, one of which Stephen is saying, I'm a prophet uh, that has been raised up to tell you the truth. He goes on to say in verses 39 through 40, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but they repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. Remember, they're in the valley at this moment. They're looking up at this mountain where the Shekinah glory of God is covering it. Moses has been up there for, for a period of time, and they're saying, hey, maybe he's dead. We don't know. So uh, remember, they were saying, you're not only against Moses, but you're against the worship in the temple. So Stephen says, let's talk about the history of worship in Israel. And he says, when our fathers were there at the base of the mountain, when God was in all his glory, what did the people of Israel do? They made a pagan golden calf like the idols they had seen in Egypt. He talks about a tabernacle that is there, and he mentions two of the foreign gods. They they were offering child sacrifices to these pagan gods. And he says, you want to talk about the way the Jews have worshipped God? Uh, They've been in idolatry. They've been doing these things. And then he says, but let me tell you what God did. God, in his mercy and grace, uh, gave you the proper way to worship him, the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. He gave you the plans for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was that temporary tent of meeting that moved with the people through the wilderness. And he says, this tabernacle that was the forerunner to the temple that you're so concerned about, where did it come from? Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. He continues his history lesson talking about Joshua, the great general who led the people into the promised land in verse 45 and how the tabernacle was with them. He jumps ahead to the the time of promise where King David desired to build that permanent temple uh, as he mentions there in verses 45 through 46 and this leads up to Solomon, uh, the king who built the permanent temple in verse 47. Now, as glorious and great as all these things are, what Stephen does is he says, let me tell you what the whole purpose of all of this was. It wasn't the end of God's plan. It was just stuff to fulfill God's plan. And what he does in Acts seven forty-eight through 50 is quote from Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. And he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in a house made by human hands. As the prophet says, I, uh, As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, what God says is, You can't build a house to contain me and my glory. And he even goes on and says, uh, kind of as twisting the the knife a little, he says, uh, you know, all the stuff that you've used to make this glorious place, I made it myself. And so he says to them, again, this temple, while it's great, it's not what it's all about. This Old Testament history lesson, what Stephen has been doing is making the point that God is not limited to a certain place. He says, your father Abraham, when did God meet with Abraham first? In Mesopotamia in Haran. These are foreign lands. They weren't even the land of promise. He says, you're worried about this building and, and the glory of God that, that overshadowed it. When the, when the tabernacle was built and this place of worship was happening, God's glory came upon it. But what he said is, God's not in the, the building. He's in the hearts of men and women. That's what he desires. Buildings are just meeting places. But you see, what the religious leaders were doing was it was all about keeping their franchise going. Remember that at this point in the book of Acts, we've seen over 20,000 people who become believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They're leaving the organized structure of the temple worship. Remember in Acts 6-7, we saw where the priests themselves were joining the church. They were seeing the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of these things. And so what the, the guys are doing on the Sanhedrin at this moment is trying to hold on to their place of power. They're not worried about God's glory. They're not worried about the fulfillment of the promise. And so Stephen, as he comes to this point in his sermon, he moves from presenting a defense to being on the offensive. He says in verses 51 through 53, you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart. Remember, they were so proud of the sign of circumcision. And again, Stephen is saying, that's just an external sign that doesn't have anything to do with what God wants. He wants your hearts to be circumcised as you come to faith in the promised Messiah. He says, you're uncircumcised in heart and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you you have now become. You who have received the laws ordained by, by the angels did not keep it. And then in verse 54, you see the reaction. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. You know, at this point, uh, remember that we were told that Stephen's face was glowing like that of an angel. Well, at this point, their faces are glowing too. They're beat red. They're, they're mad. Stephen has been weaving this history, and as the Holy Spirit directs him in what he says, they see very clearly, hey, <laughs> you're talking about us, aren't you? And so they're ready to explode. And Stephen says, yeah, I am talking about you. You see, the temple was not designed to contain the glory of God. Isaiah 66 said that, that you know, the earth can't even contain God in all his glory. And you're worried about this, this little place. He says, you want to know about the glory of God? The glory of God came in Emmanuel, God with us. Flesh and blood uh, dwelt among us on the earth. The scriptures tell us God tabernacled with his people. He dwelt among us. He took on flesh and blood in the form of Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, the one who was the fulfillment of the line of promise, the one who would be the one to contain the glory. As you read the Old Testament, you see where the glory of God was withdrawn. There was a period where Israel said, Ichabod, the glory of God has withdrawn from us. And what Stephen says is, now God in all his glory is among you. He stood before you. The prophets pointed to him. The law pointed to him. The whole history points to Jesus. And what did you do? You killed him. And it's what they're about to do to Stephen. As it comes around to to this point, uh, remember in Acts 6.14, the false witnesses said this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. But what did Jesus really say? When he came, he told them, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't alter the customs of Moses. And it wasn't about the temple. The true worship was to be about Emmanuel, God with us. What he destroyed was not the temple. They destroyed Jesus' building called his body. The Bible tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And what Jesus was saying is, you will crucify me, you will kill me, you'll throw my body into a tomb, but three days later I will rise from the dead and I will show that I was indeed who I said I was, the Son of Man. They go ballistic when they hear that title, the Son of Man. You know why? Because in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, that is the Old Testament title of the Messiah, and so it's what set them off. It's what had them kill Jesus Christ. As you look back to the... Um, as, uh, well, hold on just a second. Let's finish looking at them getting ready to kill Stephen. It says, rather than receive the message, they kill him. Look at verses 55 and 60. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and and the Son of Man, that title, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, he fell asleep. He died. You see, what happens is at this moment, these Supreme Court justices cover their ears and like little children, they go, no, 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 no. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. They start making as much noise as they can to block out the message And it says they rush down and they push Stephen out and they take him outside and they throw him off and they start throwing rocks on him as they're crushing him to death. And what is it that set them off? When he said, I see the Son of Man, the Messiah, standing at the right hand of God. This is when they killed Jesus. You'll recall Jesus was on trial and there were all these false witnesses. They couldn't get their story straight. The kangaroo court was going nowhere. And finally, the high priest says, look, look, let, let's just cut to the chase. I implore you, tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? Are you him? And Jesus said this to them in Matthew twenty-six sixty-four: you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it was at this point that you remember the high priest tore his robe and he said, blasphemy, we have no further need of any of this. And rather than push Jesus out, remember it said they had to send him on to the Romans in order to get a death sentence. As we look at the the murder of Stephen here, this isn't a judicial trial, this is a lynching. The, The Romans in that day had taken away the death penalty from the Jews. They were not allowed to kill anyone. They had to go through the Roman courts, which is why they sent Jesus on to be tried and get this verdict against him. And, and here they don't bother with that. They just rush out and they, they murder Stephen. Now, as you look at what Jesus said here, you notice that it says he is standing, uh, in Stephen's test trial, but he's seated. When Jesus Christ said to the religious leaders, he said, there's a day coming where you'll see me, the Messiah seated in heaven. Now, what is the difference? Why is this happening? Well, we're going to walk through what it means to be seated uh, in, the, in the heavenlies. But what the, the spoiler alert is, it means his work is finished. So why is Stephen C. Christ standing? Well, you'll remember that there is a trial taking place. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know that the, the attorney stands to represent his client. So at one level, Jesus is standing as the advocate, the attorney for, for Stephen, as this earthly kangaroo court is taking place where the real trial is taking place is in heaven. And Jesus says, I, this, this man is worthy. He's telling the truth. The other reason is he's just welcoming him into heaven as this takes place. Now, we live in a day where we hear all about the Muslims who are taught that if you die as a martyr, you go to heaven. Is that what's happening here? No. The Bible does not tell us that the way we get to heaven is by being martyred. There are special rewards for those who are martyred for their faith in Christ. But that's not how you get to heaven. And as you look at the the Muslim religion, as you look at Islam, if that was really what they believed, you know, it's interesting, how many imams, religious leaders, do you see standing at the front of the line to be martyred? I mean, if, if I, as your pastor, said the Bible says the way we get to heaven is by dying as a martyr... I I love you all, but I'd be saying, great to know you. I'm headed home. And I'd be one of the first ones out the door. That is not what God calls us to do. Stephen did not try to become a martyr. It was his faith in Christ that had him martyred. Uh, What the Bible says is the way we go home to heaven is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. You read Romans 6.23. It says the wages of sin, wages are what we earn. We're sinners. It says what we earn by how we live our life is not getting to God in heaven. It says what we earn is death, separation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we look at what's happening here, Jesus is the payment for our sins. That's what he did. As you look at Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews is in the New Testament. It explains uh, all of the law and the Jewish customs and the fulfillment of things. And it says, when Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. As you look at Hebrews 10.10, 10, it says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, look at the contrast in Hebrews 10:11 and 12. Jesus is the high priest who is finalized sacrifice. But what it says of the earthly priest, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And so as we're looking at this passage and we're looking at what's taking place, Hebrews 9, 6 through 7 tells us the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, this is the Holy of Holies, the interior temple, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Remember, they were so concerned about the temple and preserving the worship there. Here's a model of the temple. And as you look at this, over in the top, left, top left-hand corner from your perspective, you see that outer area. That's called Sol- Solomon's portico. And remember, the church was gathering there at the temple. There were Jews and Gentiles. That little wall you see is called the balustrade, and no Gentile was allowed to come onto this side into the courts of the temple. So the church was gathering. The preaching of the word was taking place out there in the temple. And what would happen is a Jewish person could come into this area, and the women would come through these first doors. That large courtyard was called the Court of Women. And women were only allowed to come as far as that next gate. And that was the court of men. And so the men would then go into that next area. And as they did so, they were bringing a sacrifice. And they would come up to this rail. And at the rail, the priests were on the other side. And this is where you would bring your offering for sin. And you would lay your hands on it. And they would cut the animal's neck. And the blood would flow out the offering. And the priest would prepare it. And they would take it and put it on that large altar called the brazen altar. So there's, there's this picture of separation in the temple. And so beyond that, that rail, the priests could be in this inner area. And it was a large area. That's called the, the, brass, the Brazen Sea. The, this is where they would be purified and the water for sacrifices and the ceremonial washings. Only the priests could be in this area. And then you see that door beyond it. That's the temple, uh, the, the temple building itself. And as you went into the temple... That Only a few priests, if they were on station in here, would enter into this area. This is where the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, these things would happen, and they were in there ministering in this inner area. But beyond that, see that red and blue uh, veil beyond? That's the Holy of Holies. And this was a a curtain uh, that, that separated the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, from the rest. And the high priest, as we already saw in Hebrews, was only allowed to go beyond that one time a year. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that that, that veil in the temple was this thick woven uh, barrier that was over four inches thick. And he said you could tie horses to two end and they could not pull or tear this, this apart. And what would happen is once a year beyond the veil, the high priest would go with the offering of the blood. And he would put it on what was called the holismos. The holismos was the, the covering the, of the Ark of the Covenant. This was where the atonement uh, was made. But it was, it was only temporary. Hebrews ten three through 4 tells us this. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder, not a removal. It says there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the animal offerings were like paying the minimum payment on your credit card. You ever been in that situation where you're just kind of covering the minimum payment? The principle remains and it keeps growing and growing. All you're doing is keeping the account current. And that's what the sacrifices did. But what Jesus Christ did is he came and he closed the account. He paid the debt in full. In John, uh, there's a word called propitiation. You ever heard that big fancy word in the Bible? It's this Greek word, halismos. Remember, that's the covering seat. It's called the holismos. And what would happen is the word means to pay, uh, to, to settle an account in the terms of paying it, but it's much more than, than paying the legal requirement. It literally means satisfaction, as in it satisfied the wrath of God. We find it in 1 John four ten, and there's other places, but there it says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. What does that mean? Well, we saw in Hebrews 10 that blood had to be shed to pay for sins. And I told you that the sacrifices of the animals that were offered were only temporary. I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating here. If you think of a a factory worker... Who is working on the line and something happens and he's injured he gets pulled into the machinery his body gets mangled he's rushed to the hospital and they the doctors managed to save his life but his body is broken he's lost an arm he's crippled he's got all these uh, various injuries OSHA comes in they do an investigation they look at the machinery and they say you know the company was negligent they didn't maintain the machinery it's their fault So there's a judgment against the company. There's a lawsuit filed as well. This man is compensated for his medical bills, for his pain and suffering. He's given money to take care of his needs the rest of his life because he's unable to work. What the law says is at that point, the penalty, the the judgment against the company is expiated, E-X-P, expiation, not propitiation. So the difference is this. The legal requirements have been settled. The penalty's paid. But there's still a wrath. The man is angry at the company. Every time he sees a product they make, every time he sees an advertisement on TV, he gets bitter and he remembers this company and how they, they changed and ruined his life. So that wrath remains. When God propitiated the penalty of our sins. He didn't just pay the penalty. If that was the case, when we died, we would get to the gate of heaven. God would look at us and go, get in here. Sit over there. Don't say anything for eternity. I don't even want to look at you. You are so lucky that you were here. Is that what the Bible tells us heaven's going to be like? It says we're welcomed as sons and daughters. God our Father, Abba, Daddy, welcomes us at the gate of heaven. He says, my son, my daughter is home. Come in. You're part of the family. We're going to see Jesus Christ, the Lamb as if he's slain, the one who died for us. He doesn't walk around heaven going, oh, God, well, you were really bad. All these wounds are because of you. We worship him. The wrath is gone, brothers and sisters. He propitiated. He not only paid the penalty, he not only removed the separation. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? In John 19.30, he said, it is finished. The Greek word is teteleste. What he said is paid in full. You look at this word, that T-E-T-E, beginning, means it's in the perfect form. That literally means it's a once and for all, completed action for all eternity. And then there's that little section, t e l e O, oh, Taleo, and what that word means is to finish to pay a debt. Some of you are old enough to remember the days where you would pay off an account, and you would go in, and what would you do? They would take your your loan payment out of the file, and they would stamp on it "paid in full." Anybody here get one of those? That was a great day, wasn't it, friends? That's what Jesus did. When you see "tetelestai." On the scriptures, archaeologists have dug up business documents, invoices, and at the bottom of the document, they've seen to tell us they literally paid in full. What Jesus did when he died on the cross and said, "Our English translation says it is finished" in John nineteen thirty, Jesus said, "The penalty is paid." What penalty? Remember Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death. Jesus said, paid in full. Do you remember how that veil in the temple that Josephus said couldn't be ripped apart by horses? It says at the moment Jesus died, what happened to it? God ripped it from heaven to earth. It said it was torn in two. The priest saw the separation is removed. God said, you're no longer separated from me by your sin. The wrath is removed. The fellowship is restored. Friends, that is what Jesus Christ did for us. And that is what Stephen is telling the Jewish court. He's saying, you're concerned about God and his plan. And let me tell you, God's plan from the very beginning under Abraham was a line of promise that would point to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the line of Judah. You're concerned about the temple. And the temple was always set up to point to the system that said the law would be fulfilled through Christ who said, I've paid it in full. The law was not done away with, it was fulfilled. And he says, you guys are more concerned about holding on to your franchise than coming to faith in the one who died for you. Hebrews 9.12 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. You see, what he's telling them is, this isn't this physical structure here on earth, this isn't what it's about. There's a tabernacle in heaven that Jesus is, is... fulfilled. It says, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. God gave his son to be your sacrifice and mine. Friends, he paid the penalty in full. The question here today is, have you ever accepted his payment in your place? You may be sitting here this morning saying, Roger, you don't know my debt. Uh, It's, it's pretty big. It's pretty extensive. I don't know all that you've done, but God does. And he tells us in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, there is nothing you have done or will do that the blood of my son could not wash away. And he's saying to you and me today, have you accepted it? Have you seen the fulfillment that came through my son? Have you turned to him as your savior? And he invites you to do so. Romans ten eight says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. As you look at whether or not God can forgive you, remember that as Jesus died on the cross, as they were spitting on him, mocking him, gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Did you see in Acts 7.60 what Stephen said as the rocks were raining down on his head as he was dying? He said, Father, forgive them. And just as Jesus said, Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit, so did Stephen say the same thing. Some of you here have come to faith in Christ. Most of us have. And we live in a world where we know the world is turning farther and farther from God. And we're sitting here this morning seeing all of the atrocities take place through ISIS and the other things on TV where Christians are being martyred and we're saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you letting these things happen? And God is not out of control. God is not powerless. Revelation tells us that there is a time where more and more will be martyred. More and more men and women will be martyred for their faith and they're there under the throne in heaven. And Jesus says, the time is not yet complete. And so how are we to respond to this? We're to do as we see Stephen doing here. There are more believers killed in this century than the previous 20 combined. And as we look at this stuff on the news and as we get angry and we say, what should we do? We should do what Stephen does. First, you notice in verses 55 through 56 that he focused on Christ. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Friends, we realize that this life is not all there is. Do you know we're just passing through? We maybe get 100 years here on earth and that's it. And then comes eternity. Are you living for the 100 years you have here or are you looking toward eternity? Second, it says he entrusted himself to Christ. In verse 59, it says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The Bible tells us the penalty is paid. The account is closed. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, we get our promotion. That's what we should focus on. And third, he was forgiving them. Just as Christ forgave those who hurt them, look at verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you know in doing these things that Stephen planted a seed for the gospel? Remember that as he is being stoned to death, Acts 8, 1 told us there was a guy standing there by the name of Saul. Remember Saul who becomes the apostle Paul? Paul. He was approving of the murder. He was watching the stuff. He was giving witness. And in Acts 8, 3, we see he becomes uh, an enraged persecutor of the church. It It says he was ravaging the church. That is a word used literally of a wild animal devouring. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. But do you know what happens as the story of Acts goes on? Saul will become the apostle Paul. He'll have an encounter with the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, as we'll see. And he's no longer a witness against the murder of believers. He becomes a witness for the church. He leads multitudes to Christ. And as you look at the end of the book of Acts almost, in Acts 22, 20, as Paul is looking back over his life and ministry, you know what he mentions? The stoning of Stephen. There was an impact on his life as he watched this man die. At that moment, he hated the Christians. He was against it. But it's stuck in his memory. And I know that there are many of you who are facing hard things in your life right now. Maybe family members who are against you, maybe workplace mockery or at school, you're scorned for your faith and you don't know that people are watching you and the way that you stand for Christ will have an impact on that person down the road. Many times an impact, you never know what will happen. Look, friends, I don't know if God is going to call any or all of us here to be martyrs for our faith. I know there is a day coming where even here in America, if the Lord tarries, it's going to happen. But I do know this. I know that in Romans 12, 1, God calls us all to be living sacrifices. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And it goes on and it talks to us about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you're sitting here this morning worrying about, will I die for Christ? You need to be more worried about, are you living for Christ right now? Are you being a living offering? Are you pointing people to Christ? Are you living out your faith in a way that will draw people to know Jesus as their Savior? Before you can ever die for Christ, you have to come to him. So if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, I want to close by offering you the opportunity to do that right now. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is in your your head and your heart right now say to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I've blown it. The word sin literally means to be less than perfect, to miss the mark. All of us here are sinners. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We've all done something wrong. And what God says to us today is, as a sinner, you owe a penalty. Remember, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you'll say to God this morning, as I'm going to about to have you bow your heads, just say to God in your heart and in your head, God, I'm a sinner. I know I owe that penalty of death, and I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, to go to the cross and be my payment. And if you'd like to do that, I invite you now just to bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I've tried to live my life for you, but there are times I've messed up. I've made mistakes. And I recognize because of that, God, I owe a penalty, a penalty called death. One I can't pay. I thank you, God, that you took my place. That Jesus, you took on flesh and blood. You became Emmanuel, God with us. You dwelt among us. The the Bible says you tabernacled with us. You were here. You walked the earth. You lived a holy and perfect life. And you laid down your life on the cross for me. I believe, Jesus, your blood has washed away my sins. I accept that payment. And I know, Jesus, you didn't stay dead in the tomb, but you rose from the dead three days later, showing you were indeed the promised one, the Messiah. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for making me a part of your family. May you help me now to live for you. May you let my life be a witness for you. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you pray that prayer, I'll be at the front. There will be prayer leaders here as well. We'd love to talk to you and make sure you understand the next steps to grow in your faith. I'm going to invite you now to stand and sing this closing song of worship.